Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for worshiping with us this morning at First Baptist Rocky Top in Tennessee, and happy Mother's Day. It's a very special day where we recognize mothers and just all of the women who have been mothers to so many people, influencing them for Christ and helping them to grow up in the faith. And we have a special treat that we want to recognize you with, and just a simple gesture of kindness at the end of the service. And today, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. Last week, you may remember that we were in the second chapter of the book of Acts with the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And just to review a couple of things to kind of bring us on board, or maybe you were not here, so you know what we're talking about, you might remember that Pentecost was a harvest celebration that occurred 50 days after the Jewish Passover. In fact, the Greek word Pentecoste means 50th, which was really the simple reason why folks came up with the name of Pentecost. And again, it was after the Jewish worship festival. Uh, it was a Jewish worship festival, a feast that gave thanks for the wheat harvest, the first fruits of those wonderful grains that came forth to provide for the people. And the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost arrived in a dramatic fashion, and there were a couple of supernatural signs accompanying his outpouring on all believers. There was this mighty rushing wind, and there were these tongues, these cloven tongues of fire that divided and landed on each of the 120 believers who were present in the upper room at that moment. And the result of this was the proclamation of God's goodness and praise in all sorts of different languages. And all of these people that were there for this Jewish Passover celebration, all of these folks that had taken this pilgrimage from surrounding areas into the city of Jerusalem, they were there, and they began hearing the wondrous works of God proclaimed in their own language. And we're going to pick right up where we left off, because Peter has a sermon in response right on the tails of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and as a result of some of the questions and accusations that the crowd had when this was taking place. So the book of Acts, once again, is found after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we have the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Now I'm going to hop around a little bit, and I'm going to try to tell you this because this is a very long narrative, well worth our full attention. But for time's sake, I'm going to start in verse 14, and this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old man shall dream dreams. Go down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible, possible for him to be held by it. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make full the gladness with your presence. 
Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us until this day. Go down to verse 36. Now let all the house of Israel know, therefore for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, now when they heard this, the crowd, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter begins this message, this sermon that he has here in an interesting way. He lifted up his voice. Of course, that means he just, he began to talk in a bold way, in a noticeable way in a way that drew the attention of all of the crowd of people that were there. And it's very clear that there were thousands upon thousands of people that end up hearing this message. But now, if you know anything about Peter, it isn't surprising that he would lift up his voice and begin speaking. The Gospels are replete with several examples of Peter being the first one out of the draw to speak, to make bold statements. And this sometimes was both good and bad. For instance, it was Peter who first proclaimed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus responds and says to him, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In fact, Jesus changes Peter's name to be a constant reminder of this proclamation. Peter's name was really Simon. Sometimes we'll call him Simon Peter. His name was really Simon, but Jesus changed it to Peter or Petros, which is the Greek word for rock. So upon this confession of faith by Peter, Jesus would build his church. And in a looser sense, Peter himself would be instrumental in building the church personally. But Peter could also get ahead of himself. He boldly proclaimed before the death of Jesus that even if all the other disciples abandoned Jesus, that Peter would not. And just moments later, Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And a rooster crows, as Jesus said would happen, and it crushes Peter. And it isn't until well after the resurrection that Jesus has an instrumental conversation with Peter on the beach and restores him. And as I mentioned last week, Peter is one of the greatest redemption stories in the entire Bible. And here in the book of Acts, we see a new Peter, a brave, bold, and blatant Peter proclaiming the message of Jesus. And Peter was driven by the convictions he held so dear, convictions that he had learned from Jesus, and he powerfully proclaimed this to the people. Now, what do I mean by conviction? I've talked about this before, but I think it's so crucial to understand this. When you think about leaders and people, good leaders lead by conviction. And those that are under the care of the leader, whether it be a pastor, whether it be a business manager, a principal, a politician, or any other person in a leadership position, 
should have such obvious convictions that order and guide his life, that there should be no surprises on how a person acts or reacts to any given situation. They're guided by these deep-seated convictions. Now, the word conviction itself has a simple definition. It just means a firmly held belief. But it's crucial to distinguish a conviction from that of an opinion, although sometimes we use those words interchangeably. And often, particularly in today's culture, give a lot of value and weight to one's opinion. But a conviction is something much deeper. A conviction is different, or at least it ought to be, than an opinion. It's a deeply held belief that a person is so strongly committed to that it would take a great deal of persuasion, evidence, and reasoning to even begin shifting that conviction, and it may not be possible at all. Another way to say it is that there are some things that we believe that are written in pencil that could easily be erased and shifted. There are some things that are written in pen that would require a lot more persuasion, and then there are some things that are written in blood, so to speak, that we will not change and that we will not shift because we have such a deep conviction that it is the truth. And so indeed for the Christian, we should have certain convictions that are so deeply rooted, so inextricably woven into our worldview that no rattling, no jolting, no engagement of alternative views would cause us to back away from our beliefs. And it's crucial to know what those beliefs are. And here as we look at this marvelous picture of the early church, the early church had these convictions. They proclaimed them, they lived by them, and God changed the world through their obedience to these convictions. So in Acts 2, here's what's happening. We're not far removed from the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and the Christ followers who were so few in number had been told to wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And once again, he does come upon them in this dramatic way, and they begin speaking in the tongues of a whole myriad of different languages, and those who are standing around are astonished at this miraculous event. And we're given a list of all sorts of people groups, but as always, there were some naysayers who were there. There were some that were amazed, and there were some that were just saying, look, these folks must be drunk. They're a little tipsy. And so Peter begins his message, like any good preacher, he starts with a bad joke, and he tells the skeptics around that the crowd hasn't been drinking. It's just nine o'clock in the morning. But more than just being funny, the response by some in the crowd is a classic low-level response from low-level people. It's called an ad hominem attack. They can't argue with the message. They can't argue with the genuine beauty of what's happening. So they just attack the people personally, and they accuse them of being drunk. And Peter calls this out. He said, look, it's the third hour of the day. These people are not drunk. And then he immediately starts with the scriptures the Old Testament prophecies, and magnificently presents God's truth. And to be drunk, as these naysayers falsely accused, all of these folks were doing a pretty good job proclaiming these deep scriptural truths from the Old Testament to large groups of people and in foreign languages. And so it's in this message by Peter that we see the convictions by which the early church proclaimed Christ to the world. And I think that we have much to model and mimic by these convictions. And the first one is this, the early church viewed Jesus as the central figure of history. We see this in both of the Old Testament passages that Peter quotes. 
and it was a part, we didn't read the full quotation, but Peter again quotes the Hebrew Bible, one of the prophets, Joel. He was a minor prophet compared to the large volumes of, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But Joel gives a major message. He says, in the last days that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh and the final stretch of time would begin. The apostles and the early church saw this time heralded by Jesus, and now the time was moving towards a final consummation of all things. All of the Old Testament, all of the events in Jewish history and the history of the world have been overseen by God, and Jesus was the central figure of these events. What once was had been veiled and difficult to understand, a mystery of sorts, had now been fully revealed by Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit now enabled believers to proclaim this revelation to the world. Secondly, the early church viewed Jesus' death and resurrection as the climax of God's story. You know, even today, it's very easy for us to believe that we live in a dark time. There can be a lot of toxicity in our culture, a lot of uncertainty, and just shockingly immoral behavior, particularly if you don't follow most or any of the pop culture mediums. And not to get on a soapbox here, but we don't have cable television any longer, so I rarely flip through the channels. But even being on the younger side of the age bracket in some ways, I have to admit that I'm stunned at times by what's propagated just on mainstream television and videos, the darkness that we so often see in our modern world and that our children and us are exposed to if we're not careful. But humanity has found itself at this crossroads in the past. At the time when the Apostle Peter was giving this message that we just read about, Rome was a mighty empire whose influence and strength spread across the known world. Roman's infrastructure, its military, its government strength, and its economic prevalence was unmatched and seemingly untouchable. There's a well-known historian by the name of Alfred Edersheim, and he wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus, and he provides just this gold mine of the ancient world. And listen to what he says about Rome. He said, it has been rightly said that the idea of a conscience, as we understand it, was unknown to heathenism. Absolute right did not exist in Rome. Might was right. The social relations exhibited, if possible, even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female dissipation and the general dissoluteness led at last to an almost entire cessation of marriage. Abortion and the exposure of murder of newly born children were common and tolerated. Unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defy description. Some would argue that this account could easily be copied and pasted into today's world. But it was a pivotal moment in history here that God raised up a group of individuals who were willing to humble themselves before God and preach the message of the crucified Messiah who rose from the dead. They were convinced that the work of Christ truly transformed the world. And I continue to believe that God will raise up a person or a group of people to do the same thing today. I really do believe this, that there are people sitting in churches today, large and small, grand cathedrals or dusty dirt home churches, perhaps some in affluent nations like America or poor nations, who are willing to say, it's not about me, 
It's not about my desires and my plans and my comfort and my wealth and my prosperity, but it is about the kingdom of God. And increasingly, I believe that revival will be born out of homes and families who refuse to conform to the world and raise and shelter and protect their children from evil exposure. Yes, again, they will be sheltered. And some will say that they may be strange and awkward. But I begin, I believe it is increasingly necessary to shield and prepare a young generation who will one day go out into the world and call out humanity for what it is desperately wicked and in need of a savior. And these people will point them to the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of sins that only Jesus can bring. Thirdly, the early church believed that Christ could save and transform anyone. To kind of continue these thoughts from above, Peter says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter did not pull any punches with this sermon. You crucified Jesus, he said. And friends, may I tell you that before we can truly see Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done, we must have a recognition of just how sinful, dark, and wicked we are. You are not a good person, and neither am I. And apart from Christ, there is no good in me. There is no light in me. There is no hope for a brighter tomorrow. The Bible gives us this insurmountable view of the human condition. And Paul would later write to the church in Ephesus, saying, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Peter proclaims this message, and he does not stray from the sin that is in the hearts of these people. And the only question that they can muster, the only thing that they can ask is, what shall we do? Now imagine that question, the humility of the question. I believe the desperation of that question. They wanted to know what could be done to save them from their sin and judgment and put them at peace with God and in his will. They were not mad and angry that they got caught. They were not mad that someone was calling them out from their sin and they didn't start blaming all sorts of other people for their plot. But they were broken before a holy God. Peter's answer, repent. When someone repents, they are acknowledging their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness and they're turning to God for mercy and grace. Repentance involves acknowledging one's wrongdoings confessing them to God, seeking forgiveness, and making a sincere effort to turn away from sin and live a life that is pleasing to God. Thankfully, in the Bible, repentance is presented as a lifelong process, not a one-time event. Christians are called to continually turn away from sin and towards righteousness 
and grow in faith and obedience of God. The act of repentance is not just an admission of guilt, but it's a change of direction, a turning away from sin, and a turning towards God. An author that I really enjoy reading, Henry Blackaby, speaks of the crisis of belief that Christians must go through in their faith journey with God. It isn't necessarily a traumatic event, but it is a transformative one. He writes, when God invites you to join him in his word, he has a God-sized assignment for you. You will quickly realize you cannot do what he is asking on your own. If God doesn't help you, you will fail. This is the crisis of belief when you must decide whether to believe God for what he wants to do through you. And at this point, many people decide not to follow what they sense God is leading them to do, and then they wonder why they do not ever experience God's presence and activity in the way that some other Christians do. He goes on to say, The way you respond at this turning point will determine whether you become involved with God in something God-sized that only He can do, or whether you will continue to go on your own way and miss what He has purposed for your life. The Christian religion is the only religion in the world that claims a supernatural rebirth. On social media, sometimes you'll find all sorts of individuals who attempt to debunk Christianity. You'll find atheists, agnostics, insincere or hostile deconstructionists. <coughs> Excuse me. And many of these folks have large platforms, and they do concern me to some degree because how impressionable and weak-minded people tend to be. But what bothers me the most, dear friends, so much more is the person who claims to be a Christian, a person who claims to have been supernaturally born again by the Spirit of God, who clocks in and out of their daily lives every day without ever having any obvious transformation and love for Jesus Christ. Paul completes his statement that we read earlier from Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. No matter the level of depravity and darkness, Jesus can transform lives for those who bend their knees to him. Fourthly, the early church was convinced Jesus Christ was for all people. I may have referenced this before, but not too long ago I was watching a video and there were a group of Asian Americans and there was this host and they were discussing among many other things how they might find common ground and shared values. And there was one sole Christian that was present there and he presented Christ as the only one who could bring about a real community of shared beliefs that would unite people and bring hope to the world. It was really the same message that Peter proclaimed 2,000 years ago, and of course it's still relevant today. And particularly, this was resisted, because it required repentance. It required a recognition that these folks needed to surrender to a power higher than themselves. Peter said, This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You know, we can pass over this quickly, but this was a huge revelation. The gospel was for all people. Jesus desires to save all people. Not just Jews, not just religious people, but pagans, Greeks, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims, people from China, people from Medford, people who once cursed his name, but are brought to the point of saying, what 
must I do? God's desire is to save all people whom he calls. Luke closes his story in Acts 2 with this statement. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. This is a beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ. The early church gathered together with deep convictions that transformed the world and will continue to do so for those who are obedient to God's call. I love this statement by Will Durant, who wrote his observation of the early church. He said, there is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned or oppressed by a succession of emperors, bearing all trials with fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history had ever known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena, and Christ had won. In closing, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. You know, every time I read that verse, and I know I'm mentioning it often to you, every time I read that verse, I'm humbled, I'm energized, I'm cautioned, and I'm empowered. I'm humbled because God has given us a great task to join him in his work to build the church. I'm energized because there's no magic sauce, there's no big budget programs, there's no scheduling of countless activities on a weekly basis, but the true disciplined outline of what churches are to do. And I'm cautioned because it's so easy to stray from the core of what God would have us to do. So easy to add our own pizzazz and preferences. But I'm empowered because it's not about me, but it's about being obedient to the Holy Spirit of God as Jesus Christ builds his church, this church, and the church throughout the earth. There isn't anything a strong New Testament church was commanded to do that First Baptist Rocky Top can't do right now. And you're doing it. Wednesday nights, we've had several folks come to us to worship and to learn and be discipled and to grow. Sunday morning, the giving, the prayers, the serving, you all are doing it. So let's keep doing it and God will continue to richly, richly bless. So as we have this moment of prayer, I just ask you to make an altar right where you were at and ask these questions. Am I convinced that Christ truly transforms lives? Am I living for Christ in my home, in my place of work, in my school, in all that I do? Or is my love for Jesus way down on the list of other things in my life? Do I love God and his word? And am I walking humbly before God, knowing that each day I must seek him and love him with all my heart? soul, mind, and strength. Our Heavenly Father, as I look at these questions and reflect myself, yes, I believe that you truly transform lives, but sometimes I wonder, am I living for Christ the way I ought to be in my home, in my place of work, in the areas that I go? Am I putting you first, not just at the top of the list, but first at everything in my life, first in my family? First in my job, first in my service to the church, God. And Lord, that's where I need your help this morning. And God, I know that on the hearts of the people out there, we're all praying different things and you're hearing us all, God. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that direction, give us that unction to serve you in the way that you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.